Blog Talk Radio. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to the Michael Cutler Hour. I am your host, Michael Cutler. It is Friday, and it is September the 6th, 2019. Summer is in our rearview mirror, fall on the horizon. I hope you all had a wonderful Labor Day weekend. I hope you have a good weekend coming up, and I thank you for joining me. Uh, Those of you who are familiar with me know uh, that I am a retired senior special agent, with what used to be the Immigration and Naturalization Service, an agency that after the attacks of 9-11, the terror attacks carried out by foreign nationals who had all managed to game the immigration system in one or more ways to enter the United States, embed themselves, hide in plain sight, and then carry out deadly attacks, that agency became known as DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, Immigration was sliced, diced, reconstituted. A a general mess was made of it when the Bush administration created DHS. Of course, I've come to refer to it as a Department of Homeland Surrender. I find little security in the way it was put together. I'm not alone in this. And, and And we will visit all of that this evening because what I really want to focus on tonight just days before the 18th, hard to believe, 18th anniversary of the terror attacks of 9-11, is where we are today. Are we safer? Are we not safer? What is our government doing to protect us? Uh, I have to tell you, this is the stuff that keeps me awake at night. Anybody who lived through those attacks on 9-11, I will promise you, is still suffering a form of post-traumatic stress. Uh, I certainly do. I don't think anybody who was in New York or in Washington near the Pentagon or in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, will ever be the same. It was one of those moments that you will never forget. I'm old enough to remember the Kennedy assassination, and I could tell you exactly where I was and what I was doing, and as most people can. The same thing when Space Shuttle Challenger disintegrated on liftoff, 72 seconds or 73 seconds after liftoff. Uh, because they launched in cold weather. The O-rings became brittle. Gas from the solid rocket boosters acted as a blowtorch and cut into that big orange fuel tank, turning it into a bomb. People that um, will also remember when Space Shuttle Columbia disintegrated, entering the Earth's atmosphere. We all remember these events. They are seminal moments. You can't take them back, and you can't forget them. They make a permanent, lasting impression in our minds and in our hearts. But what's interesting to consider is the significance of the 18th anniversary of 9-11. People born on 9-11 18 years ago are coming of age to vote. They have no recollections of 9-11 because they weren't born yet. What they know about 9-11 is based on what they've been told or perhaps not told. And I can tell you in my travels around the country, I've met many young people, and I've been in touch with many young people, even producers of radio programs in their early 20s who tell me, Mr. Cutler, I know a lot about Pearl Harbor. We studied it in history. But to be honest, I don't know much about 9-11. World War II ended decades ago. World War II ended before I was born. What's remarkable is that the all clear has not sounded on the so-called war on terror. The threats are still very much with us. We live under this Democlean sword of the threat of terrorism, and yet young people today don't really understand what happened, how it happened. They don't understand the role of immigration in any of this, even though the 9-11 Commission, to which I provided testimony, made it crystal clear that the attacks of 9-11 and other attacks that the Commission examined could not have happened, could not have happened 
without multiple failures of the immigration system, the same system that lunatic politicians on the extreme left want to dismantle. Forget about making it better. They want to end immigration law enforcement. And the greedy bums on the right are so driven by greed and wealth and money that they know what needs to be done, but they won't do it. Uh, This is a perfect storm, if you will. Neither party has the integrity or the common sense to take measures that would protect America and Americans from terrorists, transnational criminals, drugs, a host of threats. It's remarkable. In the middle of a heroin epidemic, uh, many cities and states have legalized marijuana. There was an interesting report on the radio today saying that perhaps because marijuana has been legalized, many more college kids are smoking pot. Alarmingly, some have become steady users. They're habitual users. And the report went on to note that doctors are concerned because when you use marijuana constantly, um, you do worse in school and it actually causes mental illness. We're very much worried about guns falling into the wrong hands. And I can tell you it's a, it's a problem that I'm very concerned about. Uh, but the laws that the Congress thinks or the politicians think are going to save us won't. Passing a law that can't be enforced doesn't work. You need strategies that do work. And uh, adding to mental illness by encouraging young people to smoke pot, which leads to other problems, and now look at vaping and yet another death today, all of these actions are against the best interests of our citizens and ultimately our country. Why in the world politicians would put greed and profit ahead of the well-being of children, college kids, young adults, and our neighborhoods? People that are nuts getting their hands on guns is a real problem. Drug abuse causes problems. You would think that first and foremost, any politician who is concerned about America or Americans or their local communities would not want to see young people or anybody getting hooked on drugs of any sort, of any sort. Alcoholism is a problem. You know, if you carry a firearm, you're not allowed to drink and carry a gun any more than you're not allowed to drink and drive. But when you have politicians legalizing marijuana, the message to a lot of young people is clear. There's nothing wrong with it. Well, in my judgment, there's plenty wrong with it. But again, we now live in an era where the best interests of Americans and American kids couldn't be further from the hearts and minds of these nitwits that we've elected to allegedly represent us. Um, Before we get into 9-11, there was breaking news earlier today, very disconcerting news. Uh, The Miami Herald published a story last night, and I I just caught wind of it this this afternoon on uh, television. American Airlines mechanic in Miami charged with sabotaging an airplane. It aborted takeoff. And it goes on to talk about how an employee of American Airlines who's been working there since 1988, he's been there for 31 years. Um, Let me see if I could find his name. Uh, His name is Abdul Majid Maruf Ahmed Alani, um, was allegedly upset that there were contract negotiations between the mechanics union and uh, American Airlines, so he decided to glue a piece of plastic in front of a tube that provides an air source for a flight control module on the airplane. What's frightening about this is that the computers get wrong information. The autopilots and all the automated systems could theoretically bring down the airplane. Uh, My recollection is that we lost a B-2 stealth bomber when ice froze over an air inlet So the computer didn't have accurate airspeed indications, and the airplane wound up crashing and was destroyed. So this guy does this. He's interviewed by the Joint Terrorism Task Force, and he says, oh, I just wanted the airplane to have to go back to the hangar so they could fix it. Maybe I could make some overtime. And in reading the article, you find out that this guy who's making about seven or $8,000 a month has houses in California and Florida. He's leasing two cars. Perhaps he's overextended. I don't want to get too far into it. This is a, a criminal prosecution that's just beginning, and I, I don't want to be unfair to him or anybody else. But did it ever dawn on, our, on these people at American Airlines or the FAA that perhaps mechanics 
need to have security checks done routinely the way that I did as a federal agent so that I could have access to, to top secret material. If you have somebody who's overextended, they may make really bad decisions. They could be subject to blackmail. There's all sorts of possibilities that then become possible. We go through hell to get on an airplane, ever more invasive scrutiny, but we have airline mechanics with unfettered access to airplanes who can create all kinds of mischief. And he said, well, he just wanted the plane to have to go back to be repaired. Well, that's exactly what happened, but his, his sabotage was caught. My bigger thought on this concern is that that airplane was due to fly to the Bahamas. Uh, over the ocean, if the plane went down, who would find it? It's not that he, he clipped a wire. He actually glued something in front of a tube. That would be pretty obvious to any mechanic working on the airplane. So you really have to wonder what his goal was, but we'll let the prosecutors and everybody else sort that one out. But the point is that we face a multitude of challenges and threats, and most of our idiot leaders are blind to those threats because they have other issues in mind. You know, speaking about airplanes, I, I did a little single-engine flying as a kid. I, my original dream was to be an aerospace engineer. And the, the Boeing 737 MAX jet still remains grounded. Months and months and months it's been grounded because it's been deemed unsafe to fly. Uh, millions of dollars being lost by the airlines. God only knows what the damage will be to Boeing when it's all over with. But the thing is, it's been ruled an unsafe airplane until modifications are made. The immigration system, time and time and time again, has proven itself to be incapable of doing its most fundamental jobs. We have naturalized terrorists. The Tsarnaev brothers who carried out the deadly Boston attack, their family got political asylum. One of the brothers was a naturalized citizen. And we've just had more cases involving Iranian sleeper agents arrested in the United States, educated in the United States. Uh, they, they got lawful status. They got United States citizenship. The system has no capability to reliably vet people who seek to become American citizens. And when you become an American citizen, you can get a U.S. passport under a brand new name because on the day you naturalize, you could change your name. I've raised this issue when I've testified before Congress. And I said, why in the world don't we at least put the original name on the U.S. passport? We're endangering our allies as well as ourselves. We're allowing people to come to America, change their name, get a U.S. passport under a new name. It's kind of like a witness protection program. A while back, I spoke about how a friend of mine at a major port of entry called me up. He was really worked up because an American had come into his booth reentering the United States. He had just come back from Lebanon where he was born. Passport set, place of birth, Lebanon, U.S. passport. He had an Anglo-sounding name, but he didn't sound Anglo. He spoke with a heavy Arabic accent, and when this uh, inspector looked at a passport, he saw he had traveled for four years all over the Middle East, Europe, and Latin America, and he said to him, uh, what was your name before you naturalized? Because the only two ways that this guy could have been a United States citizen, having been born in Lebanon, was either to have naturalized or to have had two parents who were Americans. Uh, give, the mother gave birth to him. If she was an American, he'd become an American at birth because of her citizenship. So he played a hunch and said, what was your name before you naturalized? He gave him the name. He ran the name. It turned out he was a wanted international terrorist. For four years, this guy had traveled all over the world, got easily on board American airplanes, probably walked into government and corporate office buildings using a U.S. passport and an assumed identity, basically. The solution is simple. Add the original name to the passport. If a woman gets married and divorced, the passport's supposed to reflect that. We used to have these Italian movie stars come in, and they were married 12 times, and they had extension sheets. I kid you not. You know, I began my career as an inspector at Kennedy Airport. An extension sheet with all the names. This name from this year to this year, got divorced, got married, used this name from this year to that year, got divorced, got remarried. And it was a whole sheet. It was kind of comical. It was kind of comical. I, this, this woman that I'm thinking of probably changed her, her husband as frequently as some people change the bedding on their beds. Uh, maybe there's a correlation there. God knows. But this isn't a laughing matter. The point of the matter is a passport is supposed to properly identify a traveler who's seeking entry into another country. This is about not only America's national security, but the national security of our allies in other countries. And the remedy is easy. Add a name on a passport. And when I questioned Mike Chertoff about that, when we both spoke at Chapman Law School, he said to me, oh, Mike, he said, that's, that's too much of a political problem, Mr. Cutler. He said, I'll tell you what, uh, you know, it could be done, but they won't do it. 
it's a political problem to add the name that the person had when he or she first immigrated to the United States? Are you serious? Think about how there are so many easy solutions if we really want to solve the problem. I am firmly convinced that very few people in our government really want to solve the problem. Too many people are making profit off of this. We're driving down wages for Americans. And when you displace Americans and drive down wages, and you flood America with more people who need housing, you drive up the price of housing. Guess what you wind up with? Homelessness. Look at San Francisco. Look at other cities around the country. Look at New York City. Homelessness. We're turning America into a third world country. This is not the American dream. This is turning into an American nightmare. No, it's not a statement of xenophobia. This is a statement of basic fundamental economics. And what is so remarkable is that it was clear to everybody that because of failures of immigration, we were attacked by terrorists. And and a point of fact, I I want to read something to you. Um, I've testified before, I think it's now 17 congressional hearings in the House and Senate. On May 5, 2005, the House Immigration Subcommittee, and I've testified as an expert witness before hearings at that subcommittee seven or eight times to the best of my recollection. So on that day, they had a hearing on the new dual missions of the immigration enforcement agencies, how they had redefined immigration after 9-11 when DHS was created. And John Hostetler, a Republican, went after the Bush administration over what they had done. And it was an absolute nightmare, and I couldn't have agreed with John Moore. Uh, I had testified for him a bunch of times. I actually went and campaigned for him in Indianapolis. The Republican Party cut off his money for his political campaign. And I don't agree with John on on certain issues. I'm a lifelong registered Democrat. On many issues, you'd say that I was liberal. But immigration, law enforcement, border security isn't about left or right. It's about right or wrong because we're talking about national security security public safety and the lives of Americans. That shouldn't be a partisan issue. And if it is, something is terribly wrong. So John Hostetler started out by saying this. The first two subcommittee hearings of the year examined in detail how the immigration enforcement agencies have inadequate resources and too few personnel to carry out their mission. That's still the case, folks. It's still the case to this day. And then he said, The witnesses at those hearings mentioned the lack of uniforms, badges, detention space, and the inevitable low morale of frontline agents who are overwhelmed by the sheer volume of incoming illegal aliens. If this was not enough, these immigration enforcement agencies also face internal confusion resulting from dual or multiple missions in which the immigration laws or immigration enforcement is all too often taken a back seat. Sadly, contrary to Congress's expectations, immigration enforcement has not been the primary focus of either of these agencies And that is the subject of today's hearing. Those agencies, by the way, are Customs and Border Protection and ICE, and and we'll hear that right now. So Hostetler went on and said the Homeland Security Act, enacted in November 2002, split the former Immigration and Naturalization Service, or INS, into separate immigration service and enforcement agencies, both within the Department of Homeland Security. This split has been pursued by Chairman Sensenbrenner based on testimony and evidence that the dual missions of the INS had resulted in poor performance. In point of fact, I had met with uh, Jim Sensenbrenner, his people, John Hostetler, uh, then chairman of the, uh, of the or prior chairman of the Immigration Subcommittee, Lamar Smith, and others, to explain that the way the agency was structured was created a nightmare. So between that and hearings that they held verifying what I had told them, they came forward with a proposal to change things until the Bush administration got their hands on it. Now let me continue with Hostetler's prepared statement for the hearing. The, there was a constant tug of war between providing good service to law-abiding aliens and enforcing the law against the lawbreakers. The plain language of the Homeland Security Act, Title D, created a Bureau of Border Security and specifically transfers all immigration enforcement functions of the INS into it. Yet when it came down to actually creating the two new agencies, the administration that is, folks, the Bush administration, the administration veered off course. Although the service functions of the INS were transferred to USCIS, that's United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, the enforcement side of the INS was split in two. What is now Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, 
to handle interior enforcement and Customs and Border Protection, CBP, to guard our borders. ICE was given all of the customs agents, investigators, intelligence analysts from the Treasury Department, as well as the Federal Protective Service to guard federal buildings and the federal air marshals to protect our airplanes and finally the INS investigators. CBP was given all Treasury customs inspectors at ports of entry, agriculture inspectors from the Department of Agriculture, and INS inspectors. At no time during the reorganization planning was it anticipated by the committee, uh, that is to say the um, House Judiciary Committee, just to to fill that in, to clarify for you. So he says at no time during the reorganization planning was it anticipated by the committee that an immigration enforcement agency would share its role with other enforcement functions, such as the enforcement of our customs laws. This simply results in the creation of dual or multiple missions that the act sought to avoid in the first place. Failure to adhere to the statutory framework established by the Homeland Security Act has produced immigration enforcement incoherence that undermines the immigration enforcement mission central to the DHS and undermines the security of our nation's borders and our citizens. Think about that. It is not certain on what basis it was determined that customs and agriculture enforcement should become part of the immigration enforcement agency, except to require federal agents at the border to have more expertise and more functions. It is also unknown on what basis the federal air marshal should become part of this agency, especially since it has been revealed that their policy is to not apprehend out-of-immigration status aliens when they are discovered on flights. If the mission of the Department of Homeland Security is to protect the homeland, it cannot affect its mission by by compromising or neglecting immigration enforcement for customs enforcement. Now, here is a critical sentence. I really want you to focus carefully on this next short paragraph from Chairman Hostetler. And he says this, the 9-11 terrorists all came to the United States without weapons or contraband. Added customs enforcement would not have stopped 9-11 from happening. What might have foiled al-Qaeda's plan was additional immigration focus, vetting, and enforcement. And so what is needed is a recognition that, one, immigration is a very important national security issue that cannot take a backseat to customs or agriculture. Two, immigration is a very complex issue, and immigration enforcement agencies need experts in immigration enforcement. And three, the leadership of our immigration agencies should be shielded from political pressures to act in a way which could compromise the nation's security. While I am grateful for the service and good work of the heads of our immigration agencies, some of whom are leaving presently for other experiences in government, I would urge the administration in the future to place the leadership of the immigration agencies in the hands of those experienced in immigration matters. In point of fact, what Bush did was to put people in charge of most of the immigration elements, um, to put people in charge who had no immigration experience. It was done willfully, intentionally. After 9-11, we all saw it, the politicians going to the microphones and demanding to know why did no one connect the dots? What is wrong with our government? Why didn't they connect the dots? If only we knew, then this couldn't have happened. We would have protected America. Do you remember those politicians with their sharp elbows fighting their way for that photo up at the podium so they could pound on the podium and scream about the damn dots? I wanted to mail all those imbeciles boxes of crayons. Well, I'm going to tell you something that's probably going to surprise you this evening. The dots had been well connected long before 9-11. You heard what I said. The dots had been connected long before the terror attacks of 9-11. There was a hearing held on February the 24th, 1998. And it looked at the bombing of the World Trade Center, which had happened on February 26, 1993. By the way, I did my first congressional hearing on May 20th, 1997, on the issue of visa fraud and immigration fraud because of two terror attacks. The attack at the Trade Center, where six people were killed when the bomb went off, more than a thousand injured, a half billion in damages were inflicted. The terrorists almost brought the tower down sideways. In fact, Ramzi Youssef, one of the ringleaders, had said 
that it was their plan to kill 250,000 people. That was what the head of the FBI's counterterrorism division had to say at that hearing that was held on February 24, 1998. Talked extensively about the terrorists, how they traveled, how they moved, how they did their thing. There was also concern about this case involving Resendez Ramirez, the railway killer, who had been arrested numerous times by the Border Patrol, deported, came back, killed people. He was believed to have killed a total of 15 people or more. We know of 15. He was ultimately arrested, convicted, executed, but the dead didn't come back to life when he was executed. And astonishingly, we used to uh, mail in the fingerprint cards. I talked about it last week. I wrote an article for Front Page Magazine, frontpagemag.com. We would mail in the cards. We would deport the people. In those days, you could move somebody out in a couple of days. All the nonsense that's been created by the lawyers and, 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 and the crooked politicians, forgive the redundancy, it used to be you arrested an illegal alien. You went before a judge. The judge said, okay, what's the story? He's illegal. Boom, I'm ordering you deported. The guy was on an airplane. So we deported people. And three weeks later, we'd get a notice from the FBI. Where is he? This guy's wanted in conjunction with four homicides and the rape of two little girls. I know. We deported him. You know? And that was one of the issues I raised at the hearing. Immigration has always, always, always been, as we said back then, the stepchild of the Justice Department. And if immigration was the stepchild of the Justice Department, the special agents were non-entities altogether. They hated interior enforcement. The Border Patrol got the lion's share of the resources, the attention, uh, and interior enforcement was ignored, which is idiotic. Idiotic. The Border Patrol does important work, but half the illegal aliens in the United States don't run the border. Uh, they come through ports of entry, which gets us to another point. Before, before I continue on with the, the evidence that the dots have been connected, I, I want to make a point for you because this is really important. The caravans of illegal aliens, at least as far as the media is concerned, uh, have subsided on the border. I think that the policies of the Trump administration have helped. It has helped. But, you know, um, the Bahamas was slammed by the hurricane. Uh, death toll, probably astronomical. Uh, the suffering, terrible. I, I can't bear to, to even look at the coverage. But, you see, the fact that the hurricane went away doesn't make everything okay. The disaster left in the wake of the hurricane will take many, many years to fix. And that's just the physical part. The loss of life, the damage immeasurable. Every life that's lost is an irreplaceable treasure. So when you think about the devastation caused by the hurricane, the fact that the hurricane came and went doesn't mean that as soon as the sun came out, everything was okay. America was inundated by hundreds of thousands of illegal aliens, some of whom uh, may well have criminal histories, may be involved with terrorism. People don't run the border purely to do a job uh, and be exploited, although that is quite common. Uh, I can tell you as an agent, I spent 26 years as an agent, half of those years uh, working with the Drug Task Force, and I've arrested terrorists, which is why the 9-11 Commission uh, contacted me and requested my testimony. So when you have people entering the United States, they're, they're, there's a whole bunch of reasons why they come. It might be a job. It might be that they're wanted for heinous crimes and they're trying to flee from the long arm of the law in their own country or some other country. They might be coming to set up shop as a part of a drug cartel. They may be coming to carry out a terrorist attack. There's a whole bunch of reasons why people enter a country. And we need to be mindful that all of those are possible possibilities. Hundreds of thousands of illegals descended on America, and then they were dispersed. The sun came out. There's no longer the mob on the border. So, okay, now where are we? Well, uh, a Mexican publication published a, a report a couple of days ago, and what they said let me let me pull this up for you so that we give you the the exact quotes here because this is really important stuff. The publication, Mexico News Daily, this was published September second, just a couple of days ago. July remittances at second highest level in 24 years, a blessing to the Mexican economy. The cash totaled U.S. 3.27 billion dollars with a B billion. I'm going to sound like Carl Sagan, billions and billions in one month. And that's the visible money. Money also gets smuggled out of the United States. It gets stuffed into furniture. People shove it into appliances, washing machines, refrigerators, the door panels of cars. They convert it to gold, which is easier to transport, and they move it out of the country. We have a huge national debt. 
the money that is being sent out of the United States loses, uh, destroys our economy. It's negative to our economy. You lose the multiplier effect. It's estimated that every dollar that's circulated generates three more dollars in commerce. That was the idea to President Obama's economic stimulus package. We'll put money out there, and if there's money flowing in the economy, people will make a purchase. And when they make a purchase, it employs more people, and more money gets circulated, and economists call that the multiplier effect. Okay? You know, you, you, you sell shoes for a living. You sell some shoes, you get your paycheck, you go into a store the next day and you buy a refrigerator, and that salesman now has money. And the guy on the production line, he has money, and they're all spending money. The multiplier effect. I'm sure you all are familiar with it. When money is removed from the United States, the multiplier effect does not apply. So the impact of $3 billion is more like $9 billion when you realize that the money is just gone. It vanishes. It's, it's not being spent it's been, you know, vacuumed out of the economy every month, $3 billion. Now, it's interesting. They said 24 years because that's when they began taking, you know, accumulating the records. Uh, this is incredible. Th this thing goes on and says that they sent home, these are Mexican workers in the United States, $3.27 billion, 14.4% more than in July of 2018. The number of transactions was 9.1% higher, while the average amount per transaction was up 5% to 340 per transaction. This reminds me of the study of astronomy, something that I've been engaged in since I was in the third grade. I've been an astronomy buff forever. Black holes are called black holes because they don't emit light. You can't see a black hole, so astrophysicists and astronomers Try to figure out the mass of a black hole by the impact the black hole has on its environment. For example, we know that at the center of the Milky Way galaxy lives a supermassive black hole. And we know it because astronomers who take pictures of the center of the, uh, of the galaxy see stars moving very quickly around the black hole. And by looking at the distances and how fast the stars are moving, they're able to roughly estimate the mass of the black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. They do it by indirect means. We have no way of knowing how many illegal aliens are in the United States. There's no way. You know, we estimate. You know, the Border Patrol says they catch one in three, one in eight, one in nine. Who knows? They stick a wet finger in the air and guess. Guess. When Reagan said we would have an amnesty, a one-shot deal, we were told back then, and I was part of a briefing. I was briefed. You know, we worked for the agency. Oh, it was about a million aliens. We wound up with almost four million. We have no idea. We're flying blind in a storm. We've been told 11 million for the last 10 years, even after the tsunamis of illegals. It's always 11 million. Just, just say 11 million. Who's going to argue? Well, let me tell you, the reason those numbers are up, I am fairly confident is because of that human tsunami who came to America, took the jobs, got their hands on money, and sent the money home. Like the black hole, you can't measure the number, so you look at the impact that the people have uh, on the economy and elsewhere. You look at enrollments in schools, how schools are overflowing. You also can look at the courts who are jammed up. And what no one is talking about is that right now, if you're arrested and you're an illegal alien and you demand to see a judge, you probably won't see a judge for years i mean forget about being deported this puts a monkey wrench into the system and by the way many of these aliens will simply turn around and get married and say oh i've got an american wife and oh by the way she gave birth to my little boy she gave birth to my little girl and then when they go to the judge they're going to claim hardship <clears throat> and we're off to the races we will never dig out of the hole that was created by that human tsunami on the border and we're being inundated by many more illegal aliens each and every year. Now, this is crazy. We have the most generous legal system in the world. We admit more than one million lawful immigrants every year, even under the Trump administration. For all the talk about how Donald Trump is anti-immigrant, we've been rolling right along, giving out green cards, naturalizing hundreds of thousands of new citizens. But on top of that, you have this human tsunami that are coming in, overwhelming infrastructure, driving down wages, displacing American workers. And what does that lead to? Homelessness. Because if you drive down wages, but you have more people seeking housing, supply and demand kicks in. And what does that do to the value of housing? It pushes it up. So housing costs more. 
and the working poor make less, and the working poor then become homeless. And how many of those people have their children taken from them because they are living in a homeless condition? Why does nobody care about the American kids that are being traumatized this way? You would think a country would look out for its own citizens before they look out for anybody else. They have the, Indi- the, the West Indies parade in New York last week, and the cops had to flood the area because of concerns that rival gangs would shoot it out. We always associate that day with gunfire, stabbings, violence. Why? Because we're sanctuary city. The criminal element, and you find the criminal element in every country. It, it, it's not just Latin America, and it's not just the Caribbean, and it's not just Africa, and it's not just Japan and Canada. Human nature is human nature. Every society, every culture, every race, every religion has the good, the bad, and the ugly. I, I did quite a bit of work with the Israeli National Police because my first fraud investigation caused me to trip over a terror plot in Israel. We prevented the bombing of an oil refinery. So they would have fugitives flee to the United States. We'd go out and pick the people up. Uh, and one guy who was wanted for murder in Israel. Simple as that. Human nature is human nature. We all bleed red, and every group of people has within it the good, the bad, the ugly. When you entice people who are here illegally, maybe because they have criminal histories, to come to your city, it's not a sanctuary. It's a magnet for dangerous people. So they had to assign over 6,000 police officers to protect the parade, to protect the party goers. We have 6,000 ICE agents for the whole country. And as you saw with that testimony from John Hostetler, fewer than half of them are doing immigration work. How in the world can you seriously tell me with a straight face, the immigration system is broken, we can't enforce the laws. You don't have the agents to enforce the law. On New Year's Eve, I read a report that said 6,000 New York City cops were assigned to Times Square to protect Times Square. That's the same number of ICE agents we have for the whole country, and but ignoring that half of them aren't doing immigration work. This is stupid. This is dangerous, but this is intentional. So now we've set the stage for why didn't they connect the dots? Why didn't they connect the dots? So here we go. Senator Dianne Feinstein, of all people, at that hearing, February 24th, 1998, Looking at the terror attacks, the terror attack, singular, in terms of the bombing at the Trade Center, talked about putting tagants and explosives so people could trace the explosives and so forth. But then she says this. I'm going to read this to you because this is so significant. There are, these, are, these are Diane Feinstein's words. This is the Senate Judiciary Committee Subcommittee on Terrorism, or Subcommittee on Intelligence, rather. There are also a number of glaring loopholes in our immigration laws. This is Diane Feinstein saying this, not me. I'm just reading her words, folks. I, I could do it falsetto, I guess, but I still don't think I would sound like Diane. So there's also a number of glaring loopholes in our immigration laws. As I serve on the Immigration Subcommittee, I just want to spend my time touching on some of them. Please listen carefully to this. This is three and a half years before 9-11, okay? Connecting dots, right? I have some reservation regarding the practice of issuing visas to terrorist-supporting countries. Isn't that something that Donald Trump essentially said and everybody went bats? So here's Dianne Feinstein, February 98, prior to 9-11. I have some reservation regarding the practice of issuing visas to terrorist-supporting countries and the INS's inability to track those who come into the country either using a student visa or fraudulent documents as you pointed out, through the Visa Waiver Pilot Program. It was a pilot program. It's since been made permanent. The Richmond Times recently reported that the mastermind of Saddam Hussein's germ warfare arsenal, Rehab Taha, studied in England on a student visa. And England is one of the participating countries in the Visa Waiver Pilot Program, which means if she could have gotten a fraudulent passport, she could have come and gone without a visa in the United States. The article also says that Rehab Taha, also known as Dr. Germ, that her professors at the University of East Anglia in Norwich, England, speculate that she may have been sent to the West specifically to gain knowledge on biological weaponry. 
What is even more disturbing is that this is happening in our own backyard. The Washington Post reported on October 31st, 1991. Let me just stop for a moment and, and, and repeat this. 1991. Folks, we are talking about nearly 30 years ago. This is 28 years ago, 1991. Washington Post. Here's what she says. The Washington Post reported on October 31st, 1991, that U.N. weapons inspectors in Iraq discovered documents detailing an Iraqi government strategy to send students to the United States and other countries specifically to study nuclear-related subjects to develop their own program. Samir Aj Araji was one of the students who received his doctorate in nuclear engineering from Michigan State University and then returned to Iraq to head its own nuclear weapons program. Remember, we went into Iraq because it was believed that they had a nuclear program? Well, the Ph.D. in charge of that program got his degree at Michigan State University. We admitted him here, and he studied at our university and got that degree and went back to Iraq to head their nuclear weapons program. She goes on and says this. The Washington Institute for Near Eastern Policy found in September 1997 that many terrorist-supporting states are sending their students to the United States to get training in chemistry, physics, and engineering, which could potentially contribute to their home country's missile, nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons programs. Let me repeat that. The Washington Institute for Near Eastern Policy found that in September 1997 that many terrorist-supporting states are sending their students to the United States to get training in chemistry, physics, and engineering, which could potentially contribute to their home country's missile and nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons programs. Yet the State Department often does not do an in-depth background check on the students, and once they're in the United States, the INS has no ability to track the students to make certain they actually study the subjects they claim to study and to attend the schools that they said they would attend. Now, I'm going to interrupt this because there's, there's another issue that we need to talk about. But when she says track, that's not good enough. When aliens go missing, there's no one to look for them. And that dangerous game of hide and seek, there's nobody to seek. They hide. We have no one to send. In 2014, I believe, it might have been more recent, but there was an ABC article. I don't have it in front of me. Forgive me. But I remember the number. 6,000 foreign students from terror-sponsoring countries went missing in the United States. We have no idea where they went. 6,000. 19 hijackers on 9-11, 18 years ago, killed. And forget that 3,000 number. That's another big, fat, juicy lie. Yes, on that day, 3,000 died. Right now, over 20,000 are suffering or have died, and more are being added to the list. And they just voted in Congress, and the president signed it, and I agree a thousand percent with it. Billions of more dollars to treat those who were dying because they were exposed to toxins when the towers came down. So really, the death count, death count isn't complete yet. And this was done by 19 hijackers. 19. 6,000 foreign students went missing, and their students and their citizens of countries engaged or were involved with terrorism. Now, before we continue, and I want to finish reading this, and by the way, I'll be doing an article about this for Front Page Mag and for DMLnews.com. You can go to the, the Senate and, and find the transcript. You know, I'm not going to tell you something that's not true. I don't do fake news. Um, you need to understand what just happened. And, and here's what just happened. NDTV uh, issued a report. Harvard freshman deported from airport over friends' social media posts. The Harvard Crimson reported that U.S. officials detained Ishmael Ajawi for eight hours. Now, this kid that they're talking about came into the United States on a full scholarship to go to Harvard to study biology as a freshman. And when they went through his materials, and, and you know, again, they're doing their job. He's a citizen traveling on a, a, Leb uh, on a Lebanese passport. Middle Eastern passport, claimed to be Palestinian, um, complained that he was yelled at. So he may have gone in with an attitude. I'm not sure. The guy might very well be a decent guy. I know nothing about him. But having been an inspector, the first thing he said was they yelled at me. Uh, we didn't generally do that because we would have had court hell from our own bosses. We were always civil out there at the airport, let me tell you. 
I was there for four years. I don't speak from conjecture. I know what goes on. And they went through his laptop, went through other materials, and they found posts written by his friends that were hostile towards the United States. So the inspectors looked at this and understand that no foreign national has an automatic right to enter the United States. Citizens can never be stopped from entering. Aliens have to prove that they're admissible. And you can't be deported until you're admitted. He wasn't admitted. It's the difference between somebody saying, I want to rent your basement apartment, and you say to the guy, nah, I don't think you can pay the rent. I want to make sure I don't have any problems. And you don't rent him the apartment and tell him to leave versus you rent the guy the apartment and then you want him to leave. Well, now you have to go through a, a formal process to, you know, to dispossess the guy. You don't just tell the guy, get out of here. He has the apartment. Okay. Same thing with immigration. They use the term, uh, the Crimson Tide used the term deport. He wasn't deported. He was excluded. And they excluded him on those grounds. And again, think about what Diane Feinstein warned about. And, and, and CBP explained it in detail. So now, Harvard, this is part of the report. Harvard's president, Lawrence Bacow, and, and, and Lawrence, if you're listening, and I doubt it, but you, in my judgment, are a flaming example of what my parents had said to me when I was a kid. They said there's a world of difference between being educated and being intelligent. You might be educated, Lawrence. I question your intelligence. And here's why. Harvard's president, Lawrence Bacow, wrote to the Secretary of State and Acting Secretary of Homeland Security last month to express his concerns about student visas and student work visas. Quote, students report difficulties getting initial visas from delays to denials, he wrote. Scholars have experienced postponements and disruptions for what have previously been routine immigration processes, such as family visas, renewals of status, or clearance for international travel. This year, graduates across Harvard have seen significant delays in receiving optional practical training approvals. This has hindered or endangered their postgraduate work and, in some cases, their medical residencies. Bacow wrote that he appreciates that there's a broader policy priority with regard to security concerns, including protection of intellectual property and reporting on donations to the institution, but that visa policies mandating increased scrutiny of foreign students and scholars was raising concerns. Goodness gracious. He says this. Academic science is open and collaborative, he wrote. While we support appropriate measures to safeguard valuable intellectual property, national defense, and sensitive emerging technologies, singling out one country and its citizens is incompatible with the culture and mission of higher education and national, our national ideals. Now, what's interesting also was that it was, it was written by the Crimson Tide that um, – let me see if I could find that. That only two students from Iran and one other student had really not been allowed into the United States. So, I mean, goodness gracious, eventually this kid was allowed in. I'm not sure that that was the right decision, but, you know, I don't have all the information. But I, I just find it rather remarkable. I find it rather remarkable. And they talk about in this other article, the last 10 days have been difficult and anxiety-filled. And we are grateful to the thousands of messages of support, and particularly the word of Amid East. Amid East arranges for thousands of students from countries. Many of them are on the list of those countries engaged in terrorism. And I'm not drawing any conclusions here. It's just the reality of State Department um, that they were instrumental in providing the scholarship and so forth. So understand, you know, um, and, and NBC News reported Harvard freshmen from Lebanon, who was turned away from the U.S. as allowed in the country in time for class. Look at what Diane Feinstein warned about. Don't train these people in biology. Don't train them in physics. Don't train them in engineering. They might be going back home to create weapons, and she gave specific examples. The inspectors at the airport were doing their level best to protect America and Americans, and they become attacked. One of the articles, by the way, that talk about this kid, they said, well, this is because of Trump's policies concerning Muslim-majority countries. They keep using that tired old nonsense. It's not about Muslim-majority countries. Um, you know, Indonesia, 
has more people than all the countries on that list, and Indonesia is a Muslim-majority country. It's about countries that are affiliated with terrorism, have a no nexus to terrorism, and where it's impossible or extremely difficult to vet their citizens, to keep terrorists from coming back to the United States and killing more Americans. We keep seeing a resurgence in ISIS. You think they're gone, they're back. It's like playing whack-a-mole. And the inspector at the airport has a responsibility to do everything legal within their authority to prevent the entry of those people who would want to launch an attack against us. But nowhere do you see any references to Dianne Feinstein. And now you have the Democrats calling for disbanding and dismantling immigration enforcement. Why don't they read what Dianne had to say three years before 9-11? And she goes on and says it additionally. Between 1991 and 1996, the State Department has issued about 9,700, 9,700 student visas to students from terrorist-supporting states such as Iran, Iraq, Libya, Sudan, and Syria to attend undergraduate and graduate studies in the United States. Additionally, a survey done by the Institute of International Education indicates that most students from terrorist-supporting countries major in the sciences, just like this kid, folks, Okay. And the percentages are 71% from Iran, 65% from Iraq, 47% from Libya, 53% from Sudan, 68% Syria. The IEE survey also estimates that 4.6% of the students from Iran and 10.5% of the students from Iraq are funded by their governments to study in the United States. Currently, the State Department does not do any special background checks for students coming from Syria or Sudan. An intermediate background check is required for Iranian students, more extensive for Iraqi students. Now, here's something that I didn't know, and I knew about this testimony, but sometimes with everything that comes at you, it's like trying to drink water um, from uh, Niagara Falls. You know, you stick your head under the falls, see how much you can drink. Uh, That's where we are with all this information. Now, this is something that's going to startle you because it startled me. I can't imagine this won't stun you. The defendants in the world... Trade Center bombing, this is a 93 case, are also an example of those coming in through non-immigrant or employment-based visas. Think about the optional practical training we heard about here, folks, right, that Harvard article, or abusing our political asylum process. This is Diane Feinstein. Let me read this again, because there's a better paragraph coming. The defendants of the World Trade Center bombing are also an example of those coming in through non-immigrant or employment-based visas or abusing our political asylum process and then committing crimes. How crystal clear is that? And then she says this, and this is what blew me away. Fasten your seatbelt. For instance, Nadal Ayad, one of the defendants in this case, that is to say the 93 bombing of the Trade Center. For instance, Nadal Ayad, one of the defendants in this case, used his position as a chemical engineer for Allied Signal to obtain the chemicals used in the World Trade Center bombing. This isn't conjecture, folks. These are hard, irrefutable facts. We let them in, we sent them to our best schools, we educated them, and they showed their gratitude by attacking and killing. We just had a terrorist arrested. He's a citizen uh, of Iran. He got his degree in the United States in biomechanical engineering. He was a sleeper agent. He was here gathering up materials to create weapons of mass destruction, and he was recruiting more people. case just happened. Just happened. This is ongoing. And then she says this. There is Ghazi Abu Mezer, who was arrested in a suspected terrorist plot to detonate bombs in Brooklyn last year. He came in illegally across the Canadian border to Washington State, attempted to seek asylum, but withdrew his application and agreed to leave the country. Once he was released on voluntary departure, however, he fled Washington to Brooklyn where he was arrested for plotting suicide bomb attacks in Brooklyn. What in the world are we doing? And she ends by saying, after the World Trade Center bombing, Louis Free, Louis Free at the time was the director of the FBI, Louis Free sent a memo to the Deputy Attorney General on September 26, 1994, 
and made the recommendation that the State Department needed to establish a uniform system of communication on visa denials and that the visa waiver pilot program could be used by terrorists using fraudulent documents and that asylum procedures and student visas can be abused by people trying to get into the country. And she then submitted that memo as part of the testimony for the hearing. I don't know if you folks remember this, but in March of 2002, everyone was stunned to find out that two of the dead terrorists from the 93 attacks, including the ringleader, Mohammed Atta, were granted authorization to attend flight school six months after the attacks. By then, the whole damn world knew that they were dead and knew that they were terrorists, but the old INS screwed up royally, gave them permission to go to flight school. And when the notice went to the flight school, Rudy Decker, a citizen of Germany, immediately contacted the government and said, what the hell are you idiots doing? I testified at that hearing, and if you go to the C-SPAN permanent library, you can see the hearing. I sat next to Rudy Decker at the hearing. I was there, and, 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 and Ziegler, the commissioner of the INS, was there. And, and the, the guy from the computer company that sent out the letters of authorization was overall there. And if you listen to the anger of the members of Congress and the promises they made, don't worry, it didn't happen. And now you have imbeciles saying that immigration agents are thugs. We need to disband immigration enforcement. This is not American values. Suicide is not a goddamn American value, ladies and gentlemen. And we have politicians demanding national suicide. I can't see it in any other context. How can you justify ignoring all of those hard, cold, irrefutable facts? John Adams was right. Facts are stubborn things. And you have members of Congress saying, let's legalize the people who are here. There would be no way to interview them. Forget about a field investigation. And all they want is legal status so they can move freely around the United States and carry out more terrorist attacks. And we've seen the same deal with the transnational gangs and with the, with the, the drug cartels. I know I investigated and arrested those pieces of trash. And I listened to the nonsense in the media. And I listened to the nonsense being spewed by the politicians who seem to think that America's survival is threatened by cheeseburgers. If anybody has mad cow disease, it's the goddamn imbeciles that we put in Congress. And most Americans aren't paying attention. They don't do their homework. They listen to these emotional appeals about what's fair and what's not fair. Now, I don't know who this kid is that wants to go to Harvard. Maybe one day he'll discover a cure for cancer or Alzheimer's or, or autism. He might do great things. But let's also remember that there was no shortage of terrorists who were doctors. I believe it was George Habash from the PFLP who was a pediatrician. And he went out and killed lots of people. We need to know who we're letting in. We need to know who we're training. That's what Dianne Feinstein said. So I want to know what happened to the Democratic Party. Who got to them? Are they being blackmailed? Are they being threatened? Are they being bribed? How do you take a position that's 100%, 180 degrees, in opposition to what Feinstein said back in 1998, where she clearly connected the dots for everybody, didn't she? Didn't she? You know, I wrote an article for The Social Contract about 9-11, looking back, and this was written in 2015. I'm going to end my program today um, by quoting uh, none other than Sir Winston Churchill when he stood before the House of Commons on May 2nd, 1935, when the war clouds were gathering on the horizon. And he said this, when the situation was manageable, it was neglected. And now that it is thoroughly out of hand, we apply too late the remedies, which then might have affected a cure. There's nothing new in the story. It's as old as the Sibylline books. It falls into that long, dismal catalog of the fruitlessness of experience and the confirmed unteachability of mankind. Want of forethought, foresight, rather, unwillingness to act when action would be simple and effective, lack of clear thinking, confusion of counsel until the emergency comes, until self-preservation strikes its jarring gong. These are the features which constitute the endless repetition of history. Um, as we remember 9-11, folks, please understand the obligation we have to ourselves, to our children, and to our wonderful nation. Let's make certain that the politicians are made accountable, and let's make certain that they come to find out that we're not the idiots that they hope that we are, because we aren't. We're smarter than that. 
and we need to have a little bit of chutzpah, and there's nothing about xenophobia here. This is just common sense about survival. We lock our doors at night when we're warned about burglars and home invaders wandering in the streets. Our country is built in a dangerous neighborhood. Our nation needs to act similarly. Thank you so much for joining me, and please remember, folks, democracy is not a spectator sport. See you next week.